book of Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 17 through 19 this morning. And then we're going to skip to verses 22 through 25 from Hebrews chapter 13. I apologize for our projector. I don't know what's going on, but sometimes those things happen. So if you're taking notes, then do your best to follow along without the projector, I guess, unless we get it back up. But Hebrews chapter 13, verses 17 through 19, then verses 22 through 25, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who came from Italy, send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Let's pray. Father, you know my struggles with this message this morning. I didn't want to preach it. It's hard to preach and it's hard to hear. I thank you for the encouragement of folks that I had a chance to talk to about this message. God, I pray that we'd hear your word this morning. And that we would obey it. And that we would submit to it. Speak to our hearts and lives. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to make it clear this morning that I'm not saying this because I am a pastor, nor am I saying it because I feel like I have been mistreated in any way, but I also want to make it clear that pastors as a group of people are one of the most hurting and abused segments of our society today. This is not some isolated observation. I can share with you story after story after story of this happening. We come to this passage of scripture that says, obey your leaders and submit to them. And it's challenging to speak on because of our culture and because of who we are as Southern Baptists. We live in a culture that is anti-authoritarian and postmodern. And most of these ideas stand against obedience or any kind of submission. Let me ask you something. When you hear the words authority or submission, what comes to mind? Do you find those words 
pleasant or do you kind of squirm a little bit? Our entire nation was founded on a rebellion against authority. We have a natural defiant spirit and we emphasize individual rights and any concept of submission to authority seems wimpy to us. Additionally, we have this postmodern mindset that says there is no absolute truth and that each person is free to make up or interpret the truth however they see fit. And so your truth is fine for you, but I have my truth and I don't feel obligated to submit to your truth. You can believe however you want, but you must let me believe how I want and you can't try to influence me to believe how you believe. And so truth is no longer authoritative. We claim to have authority over our own self and we will use truth for our own ends. Now on top of that, the Baptist idea of congregationalism for church governance, where each member has an equal vote, and to be honest, our text this morning suddenly becomes a problem. See, Baptist church governance, if you're not familiar with it, is notoriously political in nature. Many Baptist churches have divided from other Baptist churches over minor issues. I'm sure that maybe you've heard the joke about the Baptist who was stranded on a desert island. When rescuers finally found him, they saw three buildings on the island and they asked him, what's that building? Well, that's my house, he said. Well, what's that second building? Well, that's my church, he said. But then what's the third building? Oh, that's where I used to go to church, he said. If Baptists don't like a church, they wouldn't think of submitting. They just start a new church or join another church. So when preparing this message, I asked myself, why is there such pain for so many in church leadership? Let me give you three reasons real quickly before we dive into the text. Number one, the development of Christian media. We have Christian radio, we have Christian podcasts, we have Christian this, Christian that. At your fingertips, you can listen to the top preachers and teachers edited in a nice package deal for you. So you can listen for hours and hours all through the week and come to church on Sunday and think, well, this is kind of dull. And so after the sermon, the pastor will hear things like this. I, I really like what so-and-so had to say about that passage. Or my study Bible said something different than what you said. Or I really heard a good sermon over that same passage. You should listen to it. Secondly, bigger is better mentality. We live in a world that if it is bigger, then it must be better. So we think of people like Jeff Bezos, who's the founder of Amazon, who, by the way, lost $19.2 billion, with a B, dollars in two days in the latest stock market drops. Anyway, we treat those guys as someone who needs to have our attention. Amazon is huge. Bigger is better. And they are putting the little mom and pop shops out of business. And so the small mom and pop shop owner does not need our attention. So the result tends to be in the church life. Then big, shiny church gets our attention. Because it must be better. Little, not so shiny church. Well, they're just lightweights. 
Thirdly, individualism and subjectivism. So we have this attitude that we don't need anyone. We can do it all by ourselves without the church or anyone else. We have the Lord. We don't, we don't need anyone else. And if I bow down to even a spiritual authority, then I'm in trouble. And so this comes to its head when someone will say this. Well, that's, that's what you think, Pastor. That's your opinion. But my opinion is just as good as your opinion. The truth is someone's opinion may even be better than the pastor's. But the appeal to the authority to one's subjective opinion is a superficial appeal at best. Someone's opinion is only as good or better than another's if it is supported by the truth of Scripture. So where subjectivism and individualism reign, there is no pastoral authority. And so it is against this backdrop that we come to Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17. And it plainly says, obey your leaders and submit to them. This is God's inspired word. What we read in it is profitable to us. These verses are directed at church members. But they also contain our duties for church leaders as well. So next week we're going to look at verses 20 and 21. And then the following week we're going to look at the duties of church leaders the duty of every Christian is to obey and pray for their church leaders so let's look at the first point we rightly respond by obeying church leaders so how do we respond to our leaders rightly we rightly respond by obeying church leaders now someone might say well well, what does, the, what does the Greek words for obey and submit mean? And that's a great question. You know what they mean? Obey and submit. That's what they mean. If, there, if there's any difference at all in these words, it is, it is this, that to obey implies going along with a command or a direction and submit involves someone's attitude. And so we all know that someone can have an outward obedience with anger in their heart. You have obedience without submission then. Submission implies having a spirit of cooperation. In fact, in this context, it is to yield to the control of another person. Submission stems from trust. You trust your leaders. You trust that they have your best interest at heart. Therefore, you go along with them. And these words, respect is given to the ministerial office. So God has graciously appointed them to serve his honor by maintaining decency and order in his churches. And because they are necessary and for the good of his people. To obey and submit to their spiritual leaders is what church members are commanded to do. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. In verse 7, the author made known the particular duties they had to those leaders who had finished their course. If you remember that sermon, they had finished their course, they had lived their life, they had 
passed on. They were godly leaders that have now passed on. And here he presses upon them that now their obligation to obey and submit is not to the leaders that have passed on, but it is to those leaders that are still with them in the body. To ignore church leaders or to rebel against their authority is to despise the one who has appointed them to be leaders in the first place, which is to despise God. Now, this isn't some sort of unqualified blanket statement for obedience, okay? Because that kind of obedience allows abuse of power. That kind of obedience will enable people like Jim Jones to murder 909 of his followers by having them drink poisoned Kool-Aid. This also does not give us a basis for authoritarian churches where members need to submit every detail of their life to the elders of the church. In these kinds of churches, the pastor has absolute authority and orders people to do whatever he wants. Neither is this license to contradict biblical morality or one's conscience. It is a call to obedience and a heart that is obedient. And with that said, there are two reasons why we need to submit and obey given for us in this passage of scripture. First of all, you obey because leaders keep watch over your souls and are accountable to God. That's what he says. So if I'm a church member, why should I obey my leader? Because that leader is watching over my soul and he is accountable to God. A person's soul represents their life. When it says that they are keeping watch over your soul, the idea is out of a sleepless night. And so leaders are staying awake, watching over your life. Listen carefully, church. I can't tell you how many times I've had a sleepless night out of concern for someone in my church. How many times I've laid in my bed awake or I get woke up at 2 a.m., or 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. with a church member on my mind where I cannot sleep and I can't go back to sleep and I'm restless and I have no choice but to pray because God has put that church member into my life and onto my heart. That's what this verse is speaking to. Losing sleep over people in your church. Furthermore, let's be clear that God has instituted levels of authority in the church, whether we like it or not. Notice God doesn't ask our permission. Like, I'm going to see if you guys like having authority in the church. He just says, this is the authority. Obey and submit. The purpose of God's authority is to protect and bless those that are under authority. So, in civil government, we have authority. The purpose is to protect law-abiding citizens from those that would seek to do harm or take advantage of them. When the government does its job, criminals are punished, foreign invaders are kept away, and people can dwell in the land in peace. And when the leaders of the government are corrupt or negligent in their duties, the citizens suffer. So when it comes to the family, we also have levels of authority. 
God appoints husbands to have authority under Christ to protect and bless their wives and their children. The husband is called to provide for his family, to protect his family for, for, um, from physical and spiritual danger, and to bless his family by leading them in the ways of God. If a husband is ungodly and decides to use his authority for selfish means, then he is abusing the authority that God has entrusted to him and will answer to God for his sins. That leads us to the church. God has appointed elders or pastors, shepherds to oversee the flock. Acts 20, 28, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. Their job is not to lord over the church, but to be examples to the flock by standing firm in their faith. 1 Peter 5, 3, 2 Corinthians 1, 24. Now, on every single level, whether it's the government, whether it's the home, whether it's the church, those that are placed in authority are not in absolute authority. Every single leader will give an account to God for how they have led. In this passage of Scripture, the word leaders is spiritual, or plural. Well, hopefully it's spiritual too, but it's plural. It does not say there, obey your leader and submit to him. Rather, it clearly says, obey your leaders and submit to them. The call, therefore, is obedience and submission to a plurality of leaders. And that's vital. And the reason it is important is we see people that are gifted leaders in their charismatic and and they by virtue of their gifting will lord it over a congregation and and they have no one to be accountable to and that is not what this is speaking of this is speaking of a group of people that is leading the congregation not just one person a plurality of leadership is a safeguard to abuse of authority the New Testament is quite clear that there is supposed to be a plurality of elders over the local church. Acts 14, 23. Acts 20, 17. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. The idea then is that all of them in a local church have wrestled through an issue biblically. They have spent time in prayer. They all agree. And that does not make them infallible. But there is a pretty good chance that they are right. They should all, there should always be room for biblical discussion. But when the elders come to a consensus, the church should follow their leadership unless it's going against scripture on some major doctrinal point. You see... Elders should be accountable the way it's set up biblically to one another, which tends to pose many problems in Baptist churches like ours because we have no elders. We have one. And you're looking at him. That's all we have. One person holding this whole position of elders. Christian leadership in the church by God's design is plural. However, we will save that discussion for another time because I can't get into all the details of that today. To be clear, the text is clear that the church should submit to godly church leaders because that's what's being described. And furthermore, their authority comes from Christ. This means that if a leader is abusive, 
or if the leaders are abusive, they should be confronted and they should be removed from their office. Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. If a leader is teaching things contrary to what Christ has instituted, then obedience should not happen. Let me also be clear that abusive teaching that's contrary to what Christ instituted is not about preference. Our culture has often demanded that leaders speak to them smooth sayings that tickle their ears and sound nice. They don't want to hear things that condemn their carnality. They don't want to hear things that say that's worldly living. This is not a license to say, well, well, I don't like what the leader is teaching. Therefore, I will not obey. What it is saying is that if the leader is abusive in his office and is teaching things contrary to Christ, then there is a way to handle that. We will be speaking more about this in a few weeks, but one can look to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and to Titus chapter 1 and see the qualifications of the servant of Christ. In fact, you may be surprised at what it does and does not contain in those qualifications. Now I want to follow this up with this. And let me preface this by saying what I'm about to say is hard. Some may not want to hear it. But that's okay because it's what the scripture teaches. To refuse obedience and submission to or to rail against the one-man system of the Baptist church is to despise a divine institution. And it's to neglect the office of the pastor, which is as much the Lord's own appointment as the church itself. It's true that men will and do abuse the gift that God has given them. But let me say this. If some pastors are arbitrary, aren't some members unruly? If some pastors have pride in their pulpit, are we to think that there's no pride in our pews? In our culture where it has become acceptable to, as Jude 8 says, reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. Moreover, as Isaiah chapter 3 verse 5 says, the youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. Almost everyone feels that they are qualified to judge and direct not only civil rulers, but those in the church as well to scrutinize and criticize everything that's being done and to make sure that they tell everyone how it ought to be done well i don't like how that's done and i'm gonna let i'm gonna let them know and i'm gonna let everybody else know i don't like how that's being done and i'm gonna tell them how it needs to be done may the lord have mercy on those and may he subdue the proud who think that they are to be the one in authority over the leader that god has placed in authority they are watching over our souls they will give an account. They will stand before God. Guess what, church? You are in luck. Because when it comes time for judgment, you won't stand before God on how you led this church. But I certainly will. And I will have to give an account. I know I've been here for a while, but I need to say one last thing before moving on. Mainly, what does it mean to obey and submit? 
It does not mean you will blindly follow without ever questioning. I have my doubts that this is a problem for most people, but it is indeed possible. So even in a church that is seeking to teach the Bible, it's not wrong and it is right to examine the scriptures to see if the teaching is sound. In other words, there's nothing wrong with you picking up your Bible and studying your Bible and making sure that what comes out of my mouth is actually what's in the Bible and what the Bible teaches. I welcome discussing my sermons. And that's one thing I loved about, about George. I sat and went over this sermon with George for probably three hours, two, three hours. On Halloween night, as we're out trick-or-treating, I have my phone in my hand going over my sermon. So he got to, he got to hear this sermon, even though he's not here, because we went over the sermon. And, and he's like, yeah, yeah, I agree. That's right. That, I love that. You want to you have discussion? I, I am open to discussion. That's not what this is saying. Like, oh, you can't ever have discussion with a pastor about the sermon. It's not at all what this is saying. I welcome that. I know I'm not perfect. When is the church responsible to obey and submit then? Well, when the leader's teaching God's truth, especially concerning essential doctrines of the faith. It is not the pastor's authority, but God's that you submit to. If we're speaking of an area where godly Christians can disagree because it's a secondary matter, then you must give grace to one another to disagree. However, submission to godly leadership would require that if you disagree with me on a secondary issue, then you would be disobeying God to lead any sort of faction against me because of a disagreement. There must be a respect towards the office of those who teach God's word. This is why Paul wrote to Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. To disregard Titus would have been to disregard God because Titus preached God's word. Listen, I know there's times when submission is difficult, especially if the pastor is doing away with tradition. It's hard. I have a friend dealing with that right now where the church doesn't want to submit because, well, they would rather do what they want to do because it is what they have always done. And they could care less whether it's biblical or not. There have been times in my life where I've asked church members not to partake in something, maybe because it's heresy or something that goes directly against what we teach, but they have anyways. It grieves my heart. I'm grieved when there's no submission because of pride or because people think I'm just spouting off an opinion. I believe with everything in me that failure to submit is to disobey God. As Hebrews 13, 17 clearly marks out. The true under shepherd has no selfish aims. He's seeking the spiritual and eternal good of those that are entrusted to his care. There are many pastors that are awake, burning the midnight oil while members of his sleep
There are many pastors that will say, I will most gladly spend and be spent for the souls of those in my church. Being a pastor is not for the idol. It makes demands on your heart. It makes demands on your mind. It makes demands of your energy in a way that nothing else ever does. And sometimes the only thing that keeps a pastor going is his love for Christ and his love for his people. And that's it. So you obey because leaders are watching over your soul. And they are accountable to God. Let's move on. You obey because to cause them grief is to bring grief to yourself. Verse 17 makes it clear that obedience is for your benefit. Then it says obedience would be of no advantage, disobedience would be of no advantage to you. God's design of, of authority is to protect and bless, like we've already said. Listen, to disobey godly church leaders who proclaim God's word to you is to be disobedient to God, which has serious consequences. I've found that spiritual children are a lot like natural children. They can bring immense joy or immense grief. Every pastor has had frequent occasions for both joy and grief, times of groaning over their flock. Paul wrote about his joy for the church in Thessalonians. The apostle John wrote about the joy he had of his spiritual children walking in truth. However, Paul also agonized over the Galatians' defection from the truth and spoke of the Corinthians that they had much affliction and anguish in his heart and many tears. Paul was not concerned about his welfare or his reputation, but he was concerned with their welfare and God's glory. If you cause your pastor to groan, it is because he understands that your disobedience doesn't only damage you, but it damages the name of Christ. To be a constant source of grief Grief to your pastor is to despise your own mercies. It prevents you from receiving instruction and results in spiritual barrenness in your life. But it also zaps your pastor's zeal and his energy and it causes him to proceed with a heavy heart instead of a cheerful heart. What is even more serious is that the Lord is displeased. And his favor is withdrawn because God cares when his servants are mistreated. John Calvin said this. We cannot be troublesome or disobedient to our pastors without hazarding our own salvation. He's not saying you lose your salvation. I think he's saying you probably never had it. If you have no desire to obey and submit... To your leaders, he's saying, you never, you're not saved. You obey by obeying your leader's exhortations from God's word. You obey by obeying your leader's exhortations from God's word. Let's look at verse 22. It says, I appeal, which literally means to exhort to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Now, you're probably thinking that 13 chapters of a letter is not brief, right? Because that's what he says here, I, that, that I've written to you briefly. It's, 
Hebrews is 13 chapters long. And this sermon series, as my wife noted last night, certainly was not brief. You may be surprised, though, that if you read the entire book of Hebrews out loud, it would take you on average 45 minutes. That's not bad at all. So in the time that you could watch a program, you could have read the entire book of Hebrews. Three times the author of Hebrews has said that he could say much more, but he has restrained himself. I often feel that way. I could say much more, but I restrain myself. The word exhortation is used of a sermon, and this is what the book is. It's a sermon, so even the sermon runs almost an hour, or if this sermon runs in our church, runs almost an hour, you should bear with it and seek how you will obey it. Like, well, what do you mean? I'm saying that when I preach 50 minutes, you should bear with it and seek to obey it. If I preach 55 minutes, you should bear with it and seek to obey it. If I preach an hour, you should bear with it and seek to obey it. You'll go watch a four-hour football game, but you won't hear a one-hour sermon? If this sermon goes over an hour, it's George's fault because he said, I haven't heard you preach an hour sermon yet. <laughs> he literally said that to me. He's like, I'm used to, to an hour. I was like, well, I'll see what I can do. Now it's interesting that the word bear, which means endure, that is how it's translated in 2 Timothy 4.3. Paul has commanded Timothy to preach the word which includes reproving, rebuking, and exhorting. And then he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure or bear sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their passions. Listen, church, the reason we endure sound doctrine is that it confronts our lives and our thoughts and it reveals to us God's way. Because, because, because they're afraid of offending someone or seeking to please people, many pastors won't even declare the whole purpose of God. Because, well, that might make somebody mad. And so they hold to a view that says doctrine is too controversial. This is especially true of the doctrine of election. So they don't preach on it, even though it is in the Bible. For our spiritual growth and profit, I'm sure many pastors would not even want to preach on this text I'm preaching on today. I know they wouldn't because I didn't want to preach on it. Because it talks about obedience and submission. You know how hard it is to stand in a pulpit and say your job is to submit and obey? Perhaps they dodge talking about male leadership in the church and home because, well, that might upset some feminist somewhere. And as we begin to cut everything out of the Bible, it becomes so tame. It's like this little book that's filled with nice little things and nice little sayings for us that we can kind of take and, oh, well, that just makes me feel so good. And everyone can live as they please. And the Bible then never confronts anyone in their sin. Of course, leaders must be patient and gentle and must allow people to struggle with difficult truth as they grow in Christ. Spiritual maturity takes time. However, if you want to grow in Christ, it means you must also bear with the exhortation of your leaders. Don't just blow things off you don't agree with. 
Go to scripture and see if it's true. If it is, then submit. Not to the words of men, but to the word of God. The truth of that matter is most people don't even prepare themselves for church. They don't. Let me give you an example. I don't need you to respond, but how many of you prayed for your encounter with the sermon today? Before you ever stepped foot in this church, how many of you prayed for your encounter with the sermon today? How many of you prayed that God would move in your heart today? How many of you prayed that you would learn something? How many of you prayed that God's word would be revealed to you and that you would be obedient? How about this one? How many of you prayed for your pastor in his preparation to declare the word of God this week? You said, Lord, help pastor this week. Help him to prepare and speak to your word. May I be obedient to your truth. How about this one? How many of you actually read ahead? I mean, you know, we are going through the book of Hebrews. How many of you read chapter 13 this week? Listen, if you want to bear with the exhortation that I bring each and every week, let me encourage you to pray for your own heart to be receptive to God's truth. Pray for me as I prepare the message and preach it. Pray that I would be faithful to the text. Take time during the week to go over the passage. Meditate on it and how it applies to you. Take good notes and refer back to them. The effectiveness of my preaching is not solely dependent on how well I preach. Or how often spit flies out of my mouth when I get excited. But it's also on how well you listen Jesus, the greatest teacher ever, said to his audience, take care how you hear in Luke 18. Listen, your first duty to respond rightly, to obey your leaders, that's your first duty. And that means obeying God's word as it is preached. Secondly, respond rightly by praying for your leaders. Respond rightly by praying for your leaders. Look with me at verse 18. Starts with these three words. Pray for us. The Apostle Paul frequently asked for prayer. The servants of Christ stand in urgent need of prayer of their people. In Romans chapter 15, Paul asked the people to strive together with him in their prayers for him. Why? So that he would be rescued from those who were being disobedient. And so that his ministry would prove acceptable. And so he could come and visit them in joy. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, uh, asked for prayer that he could open his mouth and boldly proclaim the gospel. In Colossians chapter 4, he asked for prayer that God would open a door for the word and that he would make it clear. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, he asked for prayer and just says, pray for us. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he asked for prayer that the word of God will spread rapidly and be glorified and that he would be rescued from perverse and evil men. In Philemon 22, he hopes that through the prayer of Philemon that he would be able to visit soon. If the apostle Paul knew he needed prayer, how much more do I need prayer? I am but a man who is ignorant and weak and erring and, and 
useless and that the Spirit equips and moves in my life. And if He doesn't, then I'm not even worthy of my calling. And I know that I'm a special object of Satan's attacks. And I'm often tempted to compromise and I'm tempted to hold back those things that are hard to say and I've I've faced disappointments and discouragements and I'm prone to grow weary in doing good in my life. Church, I need your prayers. And it is your duty and your privilege to go to God on behalf of your pastor and pray that God will deliver me from temptation and that I will remain faithful and steadfast and devoted. I have no choice but to cry out like Paul, who is adequate for these things? Because I certainly am not. I need your prayer. I can't do it on my own. I can think of no greater picture of the efficacy of the prayers of God's people for the support of God's servant than what is found in Exodus chapter 12. But Moses' hands grew weary, and so they took a stone and they put it under him, and, they, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. That's prayer for your pastor. Will you stand in the gap? Will you hold up one hand on one side and someone else on the other holding up the hands of the man that's called to serve you in prayer? What do you pray for? Well, he tells us. Pray for a clear conscience in all things. The author of Hebrews says he has a clear conscience. Pray for a clear conscience because because he has performed well his spiritual duties. The conscience serves as a twofold purpose to reveal sin and discover our duty. And here, the author is making it clear that he has a clear conscience, which would mean that he's been faithful to his duty and he does not have unconfessed sin in his life. Now, we don't fully know what's behind his comments in verse 18, but we do know that he has said some very difficult things. He has confronted the traditionalists who were stuck in their Jewish ways and wanted to hold on to them and still follow Christ. He told them they could not, uh, they could not do that. They couldn't hold on to their traditions of Judaism and still follow Christ. And he told them that if they go back to Judaism or tried to combine it with faith in Christ, they would face God's judgment because they've deluded the gospel. That sounds pretty harsh. The traditionalists would argue with others in the church saying things like, like, well, he's saying the way of our fathers since the time of Moses is no longer valid. The author is saying that he understands how difficult his teaching has been. And he's asking for prayer because he is certain that in his conscience that he is right before God in his teaching. And that everything he said was said to promote the truth of God's word for their spiritual well-being. Now let me be as clear as I possibly can. Every pastor who is faithful to God will have to say or do something that undoubtedly will offend someone in the church. In other words, your pastor will say or do something at some point that will offend you. I can guarantee you 
If I have not offended you yet, come see me. I'll find a way to do it. I'm sure in the five years I've been here, I'm sure I have just about offended everyone at some point in time. I'm certain of it. Many times the people that are most offended are the traditionalists. Well, never tried that before. Well, we've never done it that way before. Why are you changing the way we usually do things? And you know what happens? It degrades itself into ridiculous statements. Like this. The pastor has no respect for the past. The pastor doesn't like hymns. The pastor doesn't love his country. The pastor doesn't love the cross. Fill in the blank. And then he gets accused of disunity. And sometimes what happens is the traditionalists will try to work out a compromise so they can hold on to their cherished little belief or practice even if they compromise on biblical truth. Christ is head of this church. Christ is head of First Baptist Church. Christ bought this church with his blood. This church is the bride of Christ and it assembles not to honor some funny little tradition. It assembles not to honor our country. It assembles not to practice some sort of lofty ideas that we have in our head. But the church assembles here today to honor Christ and glorify God. That is why we are here. And I've seen pastors face immense pressure and fall into playing politics in the church. And rather than stand on the truth of the word of God, they give in. Oh, church, I beg for your prayers that I will stand firm on the truth of God's word. That I will have a clear conscience in everything I do before God who knows my heart. Lastly. Pray for deliverance from difficult circumstances that are beyond their control. Look at verse 19. He says, pray more earnestly that he may be restored to them sooner. We don't know what the situation was. We don't know what kept him from visiting them, but it was obviously beyond his control. And he was asking for prayer. It could have been a health issue. It could have been something entirely different, but perhaps there were critics in the church saying, well, if he really cared about you, then he would already visited by now. I've found that critics often want to judge the pastor because he does not act or do or behave like they want him to. Many times they think that the pastor is omniscient and omnipresent both. They want to judge him because he's neither of those. Look at the heart of the pastor here. He wanted to visit them. And so he asked them to pray. 
The request of the author reveals that God is bigger than any circumstance we face. And that through prayer, we lay hold of God's power. Prayer is not some polite little gesture. But God has ordained prayer as one of the means where he pours out his power and his blessing on his people. Prayer reveals to us that we do not have everything together. We don't, we don't uh, have it all kind of rolling good and, and, and our whole lives together. And, and uh, you know, we have no issues. We're not that way. We don't need God to just kind of come along and give us a little shot so we can get things going. We are utterly and totally inadequate unless God moves. And he's chosen prayer as a means by which he moves. Some might argue, but if if God has decreed all things to pass, what's the point of prayer? Scripture is sufficient for us. And it has revealed that prayer is our duty and our privilege. It is God's way to make us feel our need for his mercy. And it is how he pours out his mercy on us. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said at the conclusion of one of his sermons. My people, shall I ever lose your prayers? Will you ever cease your supplications? Will you then ever cease to pray? I fear you have not uttered so many prayers this morning as you should have done. Wow. Spurgeon calls out his own congregation. I'm I'm afraid you haven't prayed like you should have. I fear there has not been so much earnest devotion as might have been poured forth. For my own part, I have not felt the wondrous power I sometimes experience. If we want power in our lives and in our churches, then we pray. I wonder how different the modern church would be if the majority of its people prayed for its pastors. Worship as usual would be no more. There would be more conversions in our churches for sure. If more people prayed for their pastors, maybe there would be fewer church splits and fewer people leaving churches over petty little matters. So pray for deliverance from difficult circumstances that are beyond their control. In conclusion, I want to apply this quickly. I trust that you will take to heart these two simple applications. First, I would ask that you prepare your heart for church every single week by taking time during the week. It could be Saturday night or whenever that you would take time to pray for me as your pastor. To pray for yourself. Pray that your heart would be obedient and submissive to God's word. Take some time and read the text that's being preached on and meditate on it. Perhaps go over your notes from the week before. Pray that God's word will penetrate your heart and your life and that you will hear and obey the message. Pray that the sermon is effective not just in your life but in everyone's life who hears it. Secondly, pray that I will maintain a good conscience before God and I will preach the truth of his word without compromise while I'm preaching. Pray. Pray that God's word would penetrate your heart and the hearts of those that are listening. Pray against distractions. If you know someone that's struggling with sin or with an issue that's being addressed, pray for that person. If it is you, pray for yourself. Pray that you would be obedient. Pray even as the message goes forth that, Lord, help me to obey what I'm hearing. Charles Spurgeon once met an American pastor who said to him, 
I've waited so long to see you, Mr. Spurgeon, and to ask you one or two simple questions. In our country, there are many opinions as to the secret of your great influence. Would you be so kind as to give me your own point of view? Spurgeon paused for a moment, and then he replied, My people pray for me. I will never have the gifts of the power of Charles Spurgeon. I doubt great crowds will ever come to hear me preach. But as your pastor, I would ask the same. Would you pray for me? It's an indisputable fact that pastors as a group are one of the most abused and hurting segments of our entire society. Sometimes those wounds are self-inflicted because of laziness or inability. But more often than not, it comes from the things that I just preached about. But what is even more tragic is that tens of thousands of churches are dead or in the process of dying. For some, there's nothing left but a skeletal remains and the answer to keep our church, to keep First Baptist Church from joining the ranks is found right here in what we just looked at. Obedience. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for they would be of no advantage to you. Are you willing to obey? Will you be respectful and supportive and a cheerful team player? And second, prayer. Obedience must have prayer with it. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. Oh, the power that obedience and prayer will bring to our church that we will not join the ranks of churches that are dead and dying. Obedience and prayer. That's the secret. Are you willing to obey what you've heard this morning? Or are you just going to say, well, another sermon by pastor, check it off my list, and go about doing what you always do. I don't know how the Lord may have spoken to you this morning. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. I'm going to stand down front. If you need prayer, I'm willing to pray with you. You can pray on your own in your pew. You can hang out and talk to me afterwards if that's what you need to do. My prayer is that God spoke to you in some way, shape, or form and that you would respond. Because I'm convinced... 
that God is working. And judging by all the onslaughts of the attacks of Satan to keep me from preaching this sermon, I'm convinced that we needed to hear it. Let's close with prayer.